You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Good morning, everybody. Or good afternoon, as it is, five minutes into the afternoon. And uh, really lovely to have you all with us. Um, I'm Morris, I'm one of the leaders here. I'm uh, one of the leaders that gets exported on a fairly regular basis. Um, So on behalf of the church, trying to carry everything that God is doing among us here into other situations in our nation and in other nations. And so Tom uh, often asks me just to give a quick bit of feedback as to uh, what's been going on. I was in last weekend, I was with Rachel in South Germany and uh, with uh, some dear friends, uh, Grantley and Floss Watkins. We were doing a leadership training weekend about laying foundations for a supernatural life, uh, which was great fun because we serve a supernatural God, don't we? And so it's just wonderful enjoying the presence of God. I thought the worship team did a fantastic job this morning and asking God to come and heal because that's what God can do and is willing to do. And I uh, absolutely love that happening just in the normal stuff of our uh, gathered worship together. We had a team of ladies from the Czech Republic who are out in Germany with us. They are with our church plant in Pardubice in the Czech Republic. And one of these ladies has opened a Christian school, so we brought her along to see uh, some, uh, there's some excellent Christian schools in Germany, uh, just to see that. Uh, next weekend, I'm in um, Rotterdam with two of my boys. Uh, I was supposed to be running the, uh, the Rotterdam 10K, but uh, you may be astonished to discover that I don't think I'm fit enough to do that at the moment. So I've given my bib number to one of my sons, and I'll be there carrying the water, but also meeting with a number of church leaders in different situations around that part of Holland where we're working. So they'll be uh, trying to mix business with pleasure, although, uh, you know, a 10K run doesn't always come into my category of pleasure, but uh, um, there you go. I'll, uh, I'll find some ways of compensating, I'm sure. And then and the following weekend in Helsinki, going with Rachel to go minister. We've got a church plant in Helsinki, and I'll be uh, we're doing a weekend with, um, on sort of marriage and mission, raising a family on a mission and so on. And then, and then I'm in Athens after that leaders conference, and I'm getting a bit weary uh, t- just describing my uh, agenda, so we'll move on from that. But I'm there representing you, and I'm representing all the good things that God is doing among us here. So please pray for me, and um, I'll do my best to bring back all the goodness that I encounter when I'm in these situations as well. We're doing a mini-series from um, The Last Words of Jesus, just a, a three-week uh, series um, I'm doing one today on Luke 23:34. Tom is doing another session uh, next Sunday, and then we've got a special um, presentation for Easter, a uh, special treat, which we will uh, uh, talk to you about at a later stage. But here we go. Let's grab um, our Bibles, if you have them there, and look at Luke 23 and 34. Last words of Jesus. Among them were these words. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm going to unpack. I mean, it's it's so much that could be said about these words. You know, Jesus appealing to the Father to forgive them. It wasn't, you know, I forgive them. It's, no, the Father forgive them, because only God can forgive sin. Uh, he wasn't asking forgiveness for himself because he was without sin. He was asking forgiveness for those who were crucifying him. And among those we can number ourselves, we'll come on to that 
It's just that they don't know what they're doing. They don't realize what they're doing. And uh, <clears throat> what I want to do today, I just want to look at the message in two halves. Uh, the first half will probably be a bigger half, and then a little bit of a smaller half for the second half. What I want to draw from these words is, number one, we must be forgiven. Okay? We must be forgiven. And secondly, we must forgive. Okay? So we must be forgiven. We must forgive. And speaking in terms of we must be forgiven, okay? So this is what we're going to look at first of all. There's an application for two groups of people here. The first application is to those of us who have already given their lives to Jesus. Okay? And my observation would be over years of ministry and serving in the church is this, and that is that the extent to which people understand they have been forgiven is very closely related to the extent to which they enjoy their relationship with God. Yeah? It's absolutely critical. Because if we don't think it's a big deal, yeah, yeah, you know, I've been a bit bad, but, you know, God forgives. There's not a lot to worship, is there? The Bible says, no, these people don't know what they've done. Well, if we can start to understand what we have done, then we can start to understand what God has done for us. Man, that will release you in abounding worship and a desire to follow God and pursue him with all your heart. Okay? Now, so we're going to talk to those of us who know Jesus, and I'm going to briefly talk to those who don't yet know Jesus, and I'm going to appeal to you, you must be forgiven. You must be forgiven. And then we'll look at what it means to forgive others briefly before we finish. So, first of all, can you think of a, just uh, those of us who know Jesus and have been walking with Jesus for a while, can you think of a moment in your sort of salvation story when it dawned on you what it took for God to forgive your sins? Can you remember that moment? Just try and bring it back to mind when it suddenly occurred to you, goodness me. I can remember that moment. I can remember it. I was reading an article, this is going to date me, from a magazine called Buzz Magazine. Anybody? <laughs> yes, not many of you left now that can remember that. And it was an article by a guy called Steve Goddard, and he was describing the medical mechanics of a crucifixion. He was just going through all the whole sort of dislocating of joints and the tearing of arteries and shredding of ligaments as a body is hanging on a cross, gradually bleeding out. And I was thinking, ooh, you know, that's pretty gruesome. And, and then came to recognise and realise that that was just the faintest whisper or echo of the spiritual agony of Jesus on the cross. It was a wake-up moment for me when I appreciated and understood that it was my sin and my sin alone that had put Jesus on the cross. It was a key moment for me. You know, if you try to, you know, try to understand Morris, what makes Morris tick, you know, I've been averagely sinful. You write a biopic about Morris, it's not going to be a blockbuster. 
normally sinful person like most of you in the room here. Yeah? But I have to understand that my sin alone required the sacrifice of the sinless one on the cross. You know, we use this uh, phrase sometimes to sort of reassure one another when we say, look, oh, you know, if you were the only person in the world and the only person in the planet, God loves you enough that he would come and rescue you and bring you back to be with him. Which is a lovely thought, isn't it? To know that God loves us enough that even if we were the only one, that he would come and rescue us. But the horrible thought that accompanies that is that in order for that to be possible, Jesus would have to die on the cross because of my sin. I was the only person on the planet. My sin was sufficient to necessitate the execution of an innocent man who was God, the King of glory. So... I'm appealing to those of us here who already know Jesus. I'm going to come on in a moment to those among us here, perhaps who don't know Jesus. I really want you to, um, I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful that you're among us. And uh, I really want you to just open your heart to what I might have to share in a few minutes. But I just want to appeal to us who know Jesus. You know, forgive them. They don't know what they've done. If you know what you've done, if you have reached that point of devastation at the foot of the cross, of brokenness. God truly broke me at the foot of the cross when I came to appreciate that my sin and my sin alone was sufficient to require the crucifixion of the sinless one. When we see that point where someone was reminding me earlier, the only moment in Jesus' relationship with his father where he says, God, Not Father. In all other instances, he's appealing to his relationship. But when he's hanging on that cross, he says, God, why have you forsaken me? My stinking sin was enough to separate God the Son from God the Father. That the Father would forsake Jesus because he had become sin for us. That he would then raise him again from the dead. And that I would be raised with him. Hallelujah, we know the end of the story. But I think the extent to which we've really grappled with the fact that our sin put Christ on the cross is the extent to which we are grateful to him and are able to live our lives in abundant praise and worship. Are you with me? If it doesn't mean much to you, what is there to worship? Yeah, yeah, all right. If you have been broken, there's much to worship about. Okay? Now then, to those among us here who maybe don't know Jesus, I just want to give an appeal to you. We must be forgiven. And you're thinking, well, okay, well, why? Well, I just want to try and build a case for why you must please consider that you must be forgiven. Okay, And it starts at this point. It starts at the point that says we are created beings. Okay? Why is that an important place to start? It's an important place to start because if we're not created beings, what obligation do we have to some cosmic presence who wafts into our universe and demands our worship? You know, only the obligation that comes out of a fear that he's pretty much bigger than us and could smite and smote us. 
But if out of his tender-hearted love, he created us because he wanted to have a relationship with us as a father has with a dear child, that's a different matter altogether. It's a different matter altogether. So for you to appreciate why you need to be forgiven, you have to first appreciate that you have been created. And I just want to give a bit of an appeal to all of us not to be ashamed or embarrassed about the fact that we are created beings, okay? We must start with that premise or conviction, or the rest of what I have to say will make little sense. Now, we know it's now tantamount to illegal to teach the creation narrative in school as fact. It's a religious myth, they would say. But unless you believe that God exists, and unless you believe that God has made you, then what I have to say really is of mild interest and no consequence. But if you accept that God exists and that he made you, it changes everything. Okay? Are you familiar with... Now, someone earlier said I had to be careful how I, I state this in case I make my wife a bit nervous. Are you familiar with the eHarmony adverts? Ba, 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 ba. Steve is sat with a tortoise. Steve and his companion here are the same age and are both vegetarians. And for some sites, this is enough to make them a match. You know these adverts? Yeah? Just saying, you know, you can't just look at one or two attributes and say that these are, the, these are a good match. Jenny is sat with a wild boar. Jenny and her companion have both, they both live in the same town and are both big foodies. And for some sites, this is enough to make them a match. Chris is sat with an owl. Chris and his companion here are the same age and both love a night out. And for some sites, this is enough to make them a match. And at eHarmony, however, with our 29 measures of compatibility, our expert partners, our experts partner people on their behaviours, values, characteristics, and, you know, the stuff that really matters. Now, I'm really grateful for this advert because it has given me absolutely a strong basis for appealing for creation in our day, okay? So we have to recognise... We must recognise that mankind is uniquely, differently made gloriously from all other created creatures, and he is the pinnacle and the crowning glory of God's workmanship. Yeah? If we just try to look at where these things touch and where they match, you know, you can argue. If you look at what the differences are, you get a different perspective. Yeah? Mankind is distinguished from all other created things in many ways. Mankind has far superior knowledge. Amen? We can't argue that, you know, a, a pheasant has as much knowledge as a man. Well, maybe some men. But, uh, you know, in general, humankind, their superior knowledge is clearly demonstrated. We have sophisticated emotional intelligence. We have a deep sense of moral awareness. We have a profound capacity for affection and tender care and nurture. We are spiritual creatures. Whether you believe in God or not, you are a spiritual creature. We have a highly developed power of language and communication. We have the ability to reason and make complex choices. We have remarkable powers of creativity. We have made incredible scientific and technological advances that other animals have not done. Is that plain? If you can find a nuclear physicist baboon, please tell me. 
which of any other animal can match any of this in any realistic measure? If we allow ourselves to believe that somehow this just happened and developed and evolved over a long distance of time, you have been seriously deluded. Okay? We are not like other animals. This is the spiritual e-harmony advert all over. Yeah? Morris is sat next to an ape. Morris and his companion here are the same age and have eyes, two arms and two legs, and both like scratching their armpits. <laughs> For some scientists, this is enough to make them a match. In the Bible, however, with our 29 measures of compatibility, even our children have come to realise that this is bonkers and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by our loving creator God. Yeah. Amen? That's my e-harmony effort. Come on. Stop telling me that I'm like these other creatures just because I happen to have the same number of fingers. For goodness sake. And because he can bang on a drum and ask for a banana. That does not make me... I am, I am the pinnacle of the creation of God. And when I understand that God exists and that he made me beautifully and fearfully and wonderfully in all of our beautiful, diverse humanity, then we have to come to terms with the fact that we've got to reckon with the one who made us. And he made us for eternity. He made us to enjoy a relationship with him for all eternity. We are created as immortal beings. And in the first few chapters of Genesis, we read about when God first created mankind and how they enjoyed God's company in a perfect world with perfect peace and security. But then sin entered the garden. And sin is a term the Bible uses to describe doing something that is morally wrong. It's very important that we grip that about moral failure, lying, cheating, stealing, selfish anger, pride, Envy, sin is moral wrongdoing. It's not just sort of about what's technically right or technically wrong. You know, I, I, you know, I, I could be coming to a junction in my car and mean to turn right but accidentally indicate left. That's just a mistake. That's not a sin. <laughs> I may be, you know, sort of playing in the worship band and play a wrong note. That's not a sin, you know. But we're talking about moral failure here. We're talking about moral. Sin is about moral wrongdoing. And, you know, is anyone of us in this room morally perfect? Are we prepared to say we're morally perfect? I think if any of us look in the mirror and we think about lying and cheating and stealing and selfish anger and pride and envy, if we're honest, we will come to recognize that we're not morally perfect. And the problem for us is this. God is Morally perfect. And he cannot tolerate any sin. It's not because he's a bit picky or prudish and he's sort of like going, oh, no, no, you can't come into my garden. Da, 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 da. No, it's because of who he is. He burns with holy fire. And if we come into his presence with our moral imperfection, we will be consumed by him. It's not that he will sort of choose to consume us, he won't be able to help himself. You know? It's like putting a piece of paper into a fire. It'll, be, it'll be just be burnt up. The fire isn't saying, right, piece of paper, I'm going to burn you. The fire is just being a fire. God's just being God. He's been morally perfect. We come into his presence, we will be consumed. 
And so when God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, when he put them outside the garden, this was an act of supreme mercy on the part of God. Because you say, look, I've made you, I want a relationship with you, but you now have brought sin into the garden. And if you stay here, you're going to be vaporized. Right? So let's put you outside the garden, and I'll figure out a plan how to bring you back in again. And we all know that he already had this plan in mind from before the beginning of time. And the plan was that he would send his son Jesus, fully man, fully God, to live a life of moral perfection before God, to be acceptable in the presence of God. And God is saying that In order for us to be in his presence, we need to be morally perfect, and none of us are. So we will die if we're in his presence. But God, in order to satisfy his perfect justice, has said, I will accept the sacrifice of my own son, who is morally perfect, to satisfy my perfect justice, that any that trusts in Jesus can be restored to my presence. Some people are offended by this. If you're not offended by this, you've not understood the gospel. The gospel is offensive. Some commentators are so offended that they're saying, well, isn't this some sort of cosmic child abuse? Who does God think he is punishing an innocent man? His own son? Well, in order to satisfy his own justice, that is the way that God has determined to restore us to himself. If you want to argue with that, I'll let you do that. I'm prepared (laughs) To say, God, if that is the way, that makes me worship you all the more. That makes you worship me, worship Jesus all the more. And that you were faithful to him and that you raised him to life again. That I would be raised to a new life as well. That I would die to my sin. I would die to my old self and I would be raised with Jesus. And you would accept me in the same way that you would accept Jesus. That's good news. I'm in. I'm coming with you, Jesus, because you can restore my relationship with my Father in heaven. Now, some of you here, we're having a baptism soon, is that right? Yep. And some of you here may be thinking about getting baptized, and we'll have the baptism pool here. All right? It's a grave. That's what a baptism pool is. It's a grave. It's where we're going to bury you, because you deserve to die. (laughs) I deserve to die. When we're baptizing someone, we say, we're going to bury you. You deserve to die because of your moral failure. Because of your sin, you will not survive in the presence of God. You're going to die, and we're going to bury you cheerfully right here now. God, down under the water. We'll hold you there until the bubbles start coming from your nose. Because we're illustrating powerfully that you will not get to heaven. You will die. Okay? You're going to die. But if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ... God was faithful to Jesus and raised him to life again, and he will raise you to life again as well. And so, rather than keep you under the water, dead and buried, we will, according to the extent of our sense of humor, after a period of time, we'll bring you back out of the water. Hallelujah! You've been raised to a new life with Christ. And you now can live forever. You can now live with him forever. You've got to go through the little doorway called death, but that's not any problem anymore. Death has lost its sting. 
Yeah, you go through the door, out the other side, you're with Jesus. And you're restored to the relationship with your maker for which you were created in the first place. So if you don't believe in Jesus, I'm appealing to you today. All right? This isn't a bunch of people just following some ideological preference. This is a bunch of people who recognize that we are created by God and that because of our own moral failure, we have been separated from God. And if we allow that state to continue, it will be an eternal separation. Yeah? But God has given you a lifeline, and the lifeline is Jesus. And he has accepted Jesus as a perfect atoning sacrifice to restore you back to your Father in heaven. What do you have to do? You have to stand on your pride, acknowledge your responsibility and say, I am responsible for this. Confess your sin. Repent. Turn away from that. Say, I'm not going to live like that anymore. And put your full trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. He is the only way that you can get out of this mess. And that is our appeal to you today. You must be forgiven. You must be forgiven. There's no other way. And for those of us who believe, the extent to which we understand the need to be forgiven is the extent to which you will enjoy God. Hallelujah. Okay. So, we must be forgiven. A couple of other comments on that. Because some people would teach that because Jesus has uh, atoned for our sin, that we don't need to ask for forgiveness anymore. Have you ever come across that sort of teaching? Well, you know, we've forgiven now. We don't have to ask for Jesus has forgiven us. I mean, that is such an immature response to the gospel. It's such an immature response. Now, a few weeks ago, I was preaching here about our spiritual state, that when we give our lives to Jesus, our spirits are 100% redeemed and remain so. Because... Salvation is dependent only upon the obedience of Jesus Christ, not on our own obedience. It's dependent on his obedience. But our sanctification depends on our obedience and on our responses and attitudes and etc., etc. Remember that one? So, yes, it's correct to say that the atonement has covered all my sin. Whatever sin that I have committed, whatever sin I'm going to commit, the atonement has covered that. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. That is my status. I'm now acceptable. In the presence of God, I can run into his presence boldly because I'm a forgiven person in my spiritual state. But I now have to be attentive to my behavior and attitudes and choices and learn to live according to my high calling. And to say somehow it doesn't matter how I live because God's going to forgive me anyway is a crass, immature interpretation of what it means to have a relationship with God. What, in what other relationship would that apply it doesn't matter, you know, I've been married to Rachel, Rachel uh, uh, loves me, she'll forgive me, it doesn't matter what I do, you know, it doesn't matter where I go, that's all right, she'll forgive me. Would that, no marriage would survive that if that was allowed to continue. Why would it be any different with God? You know, why would it be any different with God that we would think that somehow our relationship with him would not be affected by our behavior? So you will come across this doctrine from time to time. And I'm, uh, I'm putting a marker down for you. Don't go with it. Don't run with it. It's, a, it's, it's an absolute... It's treating God like some sort of automaton or business person who just sort of fulfills an obligation to us rather than a loving father that wants to build a relationship with us. 
If you want to build a relationship with your loving father, then you're going to take responsibility for your behavior. And you're going to take responsibility for your actions because you don't want to do things that are going to spoil that relationship. Yep. So, we must forgive. Let's move on to that. We must forgive. If you have understood how much God has forgiven you, you will never contest the fact that it is an obligation upon us to forgive others. We've seen the parable, haven't we, where the the master writes off the big debt that is owed by someone, and then that person goes and beats up another guy for the small debt. There is something profound in Scripture about the issue of forgiveness. If you read the Lord's Prayer, immediately after the Lord's Prayer, you'll read these words. It says... If you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Your Father in heaven will not forgive you. And what does that mean? You think, well, does that mean that that I'm not saved if I don't forgive people? No, you say, no, your Father in heaven is presupposing you have that relationship. What it's saying, though, if, if you're not able to forgive others, you will not live in the peace and benefit of what it means to be forgiven by God. Not that you won't. In consequentially, we are forgiven by God, 100%. Yeah? But you won't live in the peace of that. That's Jesus' words. If you're not forgiving people around you, then you're not going to enjoy his forgiveness. You will live with a sense of a lack of peace, a lack of fulfillment, not able to outwork the fullness of God's call for your life because you're distracted all the time by this issue in your life. I heard someone say the other day, I found this really helpful. He said, unforgiveness is drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Unforgiveness is drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. The only person that suffers from unforgiveness is you. (laughs) Okay, You'll be the only one to suffer. You've got to give up the right to be vindicated, to be right, in order to forgive. And so I'm appealing to us as we come to a close here. We're going to be uh, sharing bread and wine. Tom's going to lead us through that shortly. And I'm appealing to those of you who know Jesus just to remember what it cost. And allow yourself. You know, Paul says, I resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. In other words, we live in the, we're resurrection people. We live in the benefit of the resurrection. But let's not forget that Christ was crucified in order for us to enjoy that. And the more we remember what it costs, the more we will enjoy our resurrection life. And so Tom's going to lead us in. And that maybe here you've never met Jesus before, never given your heart to Jesus. I've appealed to you. He made you and he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. He wants to carry you out of this stinking mess. You've just got to take responsibility for your own moral behavior. Turn your back on that, repent from that, and put your heart in the hands of Jesus. It's the safest place to put it. And I I just want to appeal to any of us here who are wrestling with unforgiveness. I'm not speaking critically. I I was talking with a lady in the coffee break about the fact that I test my bruises from time to time, where I've been hurt in relationships and situations. 
How am I doing? How many times? How many times do I have to forgive? A lot. <laughs> Still feeling tender, God. I want to. I want to I wanna forgive that. I want to release that person. I don't want to be thinking those thoughts. Don't want to go there. Don't want to be angry. Live in that sort of perpetual sense of abuse. So whatever it is, whether it's a parent or a sibling or a, a brother or sister or a work colleague, a, a relationship that has harmed you, I'm praying that you will release that person. Release them so that you will know the experience of the forgiveness of God and you will fulfill your full potential in God. And if you're holding on to unforgiveness, you will not, Jesus tells us, you will not live in the benefit and experience of his forgiveness. You will have been forgiven, but you will not be enjoying it. It's like eating a tasteless cake. Or, for the men, a tasteless whiskey. No benefit. Yeah? So I just want you to search your hearts, just as I hand over to Tom. I just want you to search your hearts. Is there someone that you are living in unforgiveness with? Well, take a step today. Just take a step today in saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not naive. I'm not expecting it all to be solved in one prayer time or one moment. But take a step. Say, I'm not going to allow this to live in my life any longer. And I'm taking the steps now to deal with this. I have got to release that person. I've got to forgive them because I have been forgiven. Okay? So there's an opportunity for you to do business with God. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.